This is John Stepling. This is Aesthetic Resistance Podcast number 78. Uh, with me in India, Varun Mathur. Hi, Varun. Hello, hello. Somewhere near Toronto, Corey Morningstar. <laughs> Hi, Corey. Hi, everyone. Uh, Johan, <laughs> Johan Edebo um, in Sweden and Hiroyuki Hamada in uh, New York and Long Island. Hi, Hiroyuki. Hi, John. Um, I wanted to, uh, uh, there's a number of things to cover, but I wanted to read a quote um, from, that actually Corey sent to me from Bertrand Russell, just because it seems extraordinarily prescient um, and apt, uh, though, you know, I find people um, impervious to the, the um, the meaning, the, the sense of this thing. Anyway, let me quote. Mm. Uh, Diet, injections, and injunctions will combine from a very early age to produce the sort of character and the sort of beliefs that the authorities huh. consider desirable. And any serious criticism of the powers that be will become psychologically impossible. Wow. Even if all are miserable all will believe themselves happy because the government will tell them that they are so close quote um that's pretty amazing uh, because you might well have um um written that uh yesterday i guess um, what year is this i don't know actually but it's 70s um, probably yeah 70s. maybe Maybe I mean, it, 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 you know, we could we could dig up a a bunch of quotes not terribly dissimilar from you know Huxley or Orwell or whoever. All you know, and and a lot of these guys had you know, strangely reactionary tendencies at times. I certainly Russell did, but but you know, they also understood something mm. profoundly. Um, that something was profoundly wrong with the the, the trajectory of Western mm -hmm. um, culture and society, and um, uh, it, it it's it's distressing. I I think I've become fixated a bit on on this what I wrote about in, in the last blog post. This sense of psychological paralysis cognitive paralysis uh in in the culture at large society at large at least in the west that that people um you know by and large the majority slight majority at least um in the best case scenario are simply are simply their minds are frozen in place and yeah. and and facts and arguments don't matter. You, you, you have a very hard time convincing people to change their position based on evidence or facts, even though they, they you know, sort of claim to value um, evidence and facts um, above all other things. Uh, it's, it's strange. Anyway, um, let's go to Johan Corey Vroon. And Corey, you, you can go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to add that I found that quote on Whitney Webb's channel on Telegram, Unlimited Hangout. Um, and then I just wanted to add also, you know, yeah, 
in Canada, I heard a couple weeks ago, I think, I don't think I mentioned it last time, the um, stat for mental illness in Canada, Canada diagnosed mental illness is 25% um, of the population, like one in four people have been diagnosed as, um, with mental illness. So that's like a quarter of the population, right? 36 million. And that's just those diagnosed who are, um, if they're diagnosed, they're likely on medication. And I've just noticed too, in the past maybe year, I've really noticed it a lot. Um, I really, really sense that people are sad, depressed. Like I have a lot of family members, friends, and whenever I ask someone how they are, you know, they're like sort of, okay, you know, all right. They're, they're not happy, like, you know, great. How are you doing? You know, what are you up to this week? Like everyone's just basically hit, hit this, yeah, sort of hit this plateau where no one really feels happy anymore. You know, people feel like troubled, no. like something's wrong, something's missing. And yeah, it's, something really is wrong. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, um, that's my experience as well. Um, most everybody I know is depressed, lonely, feels isolated, cut off. Um, I think it breeds paranoia in people. I mean, it does in me, probably, you know. Um, and mm -hmm. and uh, that statistic for Canada is true of the United States, too, because I'm pretty sure I read um, one in four um, Americans have at one time been prescribed antidepressants. So, you know, that's, those are staggering numbers, you know. Those are, and, and I know that suicide is, is um, on the rise, especially among youth. Um, okay, Johan. Sure, <clears throat> let's see if we can't connect that <clears throat> unhappiness to, to what you call cognitive paralysis because reasonably a situation of cognitive paralysis would, would be quite disturbing for an individual. It would engender powerlessness in a very profound sense. Anyway, that Russell quote you began with, it resonates very strongly with, with what, I was, what I've been thinking about these last few days and what I had in mind to talk about today. I was talking to Varun the other day about how how it occurred to both of us that the people we interact with don't really believe things anymore in, in any conventional sense, or, or at least I would say that the, the relatively advanced mode of cognition that that's um, inherent to uh, reflective propositional belief is, is increasingly rare to see, and and this kind of, of stood out to me with particular force a couple of days ago when when a statement I had made online. It was just not completely misunderstood, but the counter argument I received was so utterly and obviously incoherent. And, and this was interesting <laughs> to me. And basically, I, I got these four separate statements, and two of each effectively negated one another. So, so the net result was this complete contradiction. And this contradiction was, was propelled against me with, with force and a strong moral tender. And, and I, I just sat there and, and asked myself, what what does this person actually think he's expressing here? Well, what proposition does he actually believe himself to be offering me? And then I kind of realized that, that all of these four separate statements, they were simply 
you know, emotionally charged images lifted straight off of the mainstream media's incoherent and inconsistent propaganda narratives, you know, they, they don't have to be formally coherent to do their work. So, so these were not actual propositions in, in any conventional sense at all, but rather something like sensational slogans or sets of symbols operating at a non-rational level. So it's like you're questioning capitalism and somebody comes to capitalism's defense by, by just singing the Uncle Ben's Chicken Tonight song or, or informing <laughs> that, that Disneyland is the happiest place on earth or something like that. So, so th that, that's my strange that's... experience of the week. Varun? Uh, yeah, I was going to go along with a similar, a similar example. Is that I think it's, it's been this, this kind of arthritic collective mind has been a result of very high dependence that has occurred in the last 20, 25 years on external sources of um, confirming one's experience. And it's now been completely outsourced in that sense. Right? Yeah. So you have this rise in technology is directly related to not trusting your what you your knowingness has mm -hmm. been completely disrupted. And I think, the, I mean, the, the social media and the media, how it runs right now is entirely on disruption of focus and attention so that there is no long term analytical aspect left of the yeah. individual's mind at all so when you were like this exchange that i was having with this person online and i was trying to explain that um the the that his critique of the spectacle was placed within the spectacle and it was not mm -hmm. looking at it from a cohesive external externalized point of view but there seemed to be a disconnect where there was a like the bedrock from which the response was coming was that of course liberal economy is the only place where we can jump from there cannot be anything else and that i think is a really very troubling thing when you can't change the central tenet of how society functions <clears throat> that means that the belief is so fructified and that, i think that neuroticism is what is making people depressed is that there is no quarter there is no room for movement and you have to negotiate within this kind of delusional plan that supposedly is equated to natural life right like that's <clears throat> yeah you know i was i started working on a new blog post um yesterday and uh it was triggered as my posts are by odd things triggered by um a short article on the history of the Polaroid camera, instant camera, uh, which was invented in 1947, but became quite popular in the, the mid late fifties on into the sixties. And it was, it became part of American culture. It was embedded in the, you know, the, the fabric of, of the culture. And, and I remember my father had my, you know, on and on. And I'm going to, there's a lot of things to say about the aesthetics of Polaroids I happen to love because I think there's something haunting about the, the sort of temporality of the whole thing. But one thing that struck me was my memory of Polaroids is that it was social. You know, there, oh. there were no like iPhones taking 
immediate digital pictures and you could see that. I mean, that was unheard of. This was like a radical thing that you could see the photo you took, you know, 15 seconds later or whatever it was. And it was social. Everybody huddled around and waited for the, you know, developed little <laughs> weird thing to come off and you tear it out of the camera and there it was. Um, and and certain artists, Warhol, David Hockney, different different people, you know, took massive amounts of Polaroids. Uh, but but it my memory of it, this is my only point, I have no great philosophical punchline here. My only point was that my memory was that it was an optimistic experience mm. playing with it, that it was that it was that it was part of of this social, it was always a party. Taking Polaroids was like a mini party, you know, <clears throat> and and that's all gone. In the same way that if if you look at the pictures that Warhol or people before him took with Polaroid, you look, um, it, 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 that sense of of freedom or or anarchy or optimism, whatever you want to do, that is what I feel is gone. Mm. And it's partly linked to the disappearance of the avant-garde and, you know, all the reasons that we're talking about this, this, um, this cognitive paralysis, whatever we want to call it, uh, all the many reasons for that, of course, extend, you know, into would be hours worth of discussion. But sure. um, it, it, that's why people feel depressed partly is you don't there's none of that and i feel it there's none of that left anymore um i i i just i it's on a deep kind of emotional physiological yeah. level i don't feel that way anymore about anything i feel it with my children perhaps my family you know and 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 that's about it um you know with you guys but yeah. but i mean it's very rare and and even then the the weight of of this dystopia we live in um um weight you know is is crushing i don't know um hiroyuki and then johan well, I guess um, definitely the uh, the screen experience is exacerbating the uh, the whole thing. We uh, instead of just um, being in a open air uh, prison, we we are basically in uh, in the cells. Um, you know, the screens act as a, yeah, uh, outlets good. that are uh, curated by the establishment, and they also our responses are limited. Uh, you know, the social media is geared toward um arguments and conflicts that's how people get the clicks so yeah you know, so, yeah that's good yeah. from open air prison to um solitary confinement that that pretty much um describes uh the last 40 years johan yeah so, so let me try to connect this observation to to marcus's work which you you and i have been talking a little bit about during the, the last week yeah. Because one, one of Makusa's <clears throat> key contentions in the, this book, Negations, uh, it, it's very relevant here, I think. And this is the idea that contemporary society, for, for complex reasons, <clears throat> constitutes itself as what he calls an existential absolute. And, and I interpret this in the sense that society is characterized by 
by by uh, this absolute legitimacy that's that's exempt from from any any rational standard or, or norms lying behind it so, so it, it kind of gets constituted as this secular theocracy or very much akin to it so, so the society becomes a, a sort of moral absolute which uh, which also connects to to the role and function of the of the crisis and the emergency which we also talked about since, since anything that's perceived as a threat to a social order that's a moral absolute gets immediately constituted as, as this distinct and unambiguous moral evil that, that cannot need not be rationally justified as such. And, and I, my, my question, what I've been mulling over these last few days is exactly how the social order gets constituted as uh, unquestionably legitimate in the sense that these debates we've had on the internet exemplify and, and one answer I think lies in what you guys just talked about that I think this can only really happen through this spectacular suppression of, of immediate connection and immediate experience. This, this prison of the spectacle, as you almost phrased it here, Yuki. Right. Hmm. No, I think that that's an early, as I recall, a very early essay of Marcuse's. Um, and it's very good, and maybe we can provide a link to it. Uh, you know, it's hard to, to talk about what is a complex subject um, on, on a podcast. And this is, this is one of the problems I have with podcasts. And I, I realized this week, I mean, I love doing this one, and, and I hope we can continue to do it and, and all that. but. Um, I don't listen to many other podcasts. I read people's articles. You know, yeah. I read all the time, all day, every day. I don't listen to many podcasts. Um, I feel people are, take forever to get to the fucking point. You know, um, people are very slow um, in in how they talk. Maybe that's just me, but um, it's uh, it, it, it it's curious. Anyway, yeah, I I think that um, that if people don't know Marx, if they're not Marxists, um, <clears throat> even even rudimentary understanding of you know uh, basic tenets of Marx, um, there you have a hard time talking to them about even something like authority. And, and you know the, the class struggle, and that there is this dynamic between you know the haves and have-nots, and so forth, um, and and on and on. You know, and it, we can't really launch into that. But but and and very few people read Marx now because he's relentlessly attacked, um, and and discredited. He's referred to. I that word is like now a, a prefix to Marx's name, discredited. Um, and, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> um, so, you know, it's, it's, uh, I'm always at a loss as to how to try to explain to people the, the nature of ideology, for example, the way in which the, the ruling class, the, those people who owned um, media, 
for example, big pharmaceutical corporations, um, the defense industry, the way in which they um, disseminate values and beliefs and, and so forth. Uh, and, and, you know, we're in the midst of a week in which people are starting to talk seriously about UFOs and aliens again, because there was a, a weather balloon shot down and um, our friend Rob Snyder noted that in the comment thread, I think to the New York Times, someplace where they had an article about the shooting of the weather balloon, I hope I didn't mention this last time, um, you know, there was all this um, bravado and hoo-ha, you know, US, US. Um, they shot down a fucking balloon that was drifting at like two knots, you know, up, you could, up, a special needs kid with an air rifle could bring it down. This was not a monumental achievement. Um, and then this technologically advanced society of the West, the United States, can't find the debris for the other things they shot down. Because yeah, you know, the weather's bad. So it's rainy in the mountains and all this technology, you can't find the debris. I mean, the 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 level of of I don't, you know, just stupid that exists out there with this stuff is amazing. And so I start to wonder if, you know, and I'm trying to bring this actually back to Marcusa, believe it or not. Um, I start to wonder if um, the, the, the nature of belief has, has radically changed. Yeah, I think that, so, yeah. That, that, that people say, you know, we, that, that people believe the story of the US and the threatening Chinese weather balloon. They believe that happened um, and, that, and that it was a dangerous thing or something or a provocation. Um, and, and at the same time, though, I think they don't believe it. They know that's just stupid and, and that, and that 75,000 weather balloons are launched globally every year, some figure, maybe more. And, and yet it's, it's this compartmentalized, it's, but it's not even that, it's something, it's something more nuanced and, and um, um, insidious uh, that, that is taking place in, in the, the psychological mechanisms of belief and the way in which propaganda works. I was telling somebody about the Seymour Hirsch article about the U.S. blowing up Nord Stream pipeline. And this is Seymour Hirsch, right? The legendary, iconic mm -hmm. figure. And I said, and, you know, Norway was party to this, apparently. And the answer was, well, it's just one journalist. You know, I haven't read it in the mainstream press. And I thought, no, but of course you haven't. Um, and and yet that discredits it, even mm -hmm. though I think, I think there's also a belief in the Hirsch story. At the, at the same time, there's a disbelief in it. It's funny, right? It's like different parts of, yeah. of one's emotional makeup. Anyway, okay, Varun and Johan. Yeah, I just wanted to take, a, um, like, put <clears throat> the idea of the visual culture narrative that you were talking about with the Polaroids and. Um, what you're talking about, belief systems right now. Um, well, I mean, if you look at it historically, it was about um, 
capturing a moment, but it was always the gaze was pointed outwards. It was an analysis and a and a and an accumulation of the context that the individual was inhabiting at the time and the memory that it was creating. But now the visual narrative has become the falsely individuated self which is standing in front of the monument. It's no longer about the monument. It's no longer yeah. about the park. It's not about the trees. So the gaze in that sense has kind of fallen back upon itself, which has isolated the individual from. So there is no analysis of society anymore. There is only an analysis of this fabricated idea of, well, in one sense, it's kind of a reflection of the superstructure, but it's like the, mm. the false ego is looking at itself. That's all it is looking at. And there is no wonder in that sense that there is a rise in depression because that's where you get the disconnect from society, right? So if there is going to be a, a, a mechanism to decimate society internally, just make people obsessed with themselves. Oh. They have nothing else. <laughs> no, I, 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 think, I think that's actually really um, <clears throat> um, a really cogent insight. Um, but I'll come back to that. Johan? Sure, and just to maybe connect with, with what Varun just said, uh, on the lack or the absence of, of belief, uh, just my, my experience or my, <clears throat> my interpretation of, of these interactions I've had on, online the last couple of weeks, it, it sort of emerges to me that many of the persons that, that, did, that sort of attack me or argue against my positions, it occurred to me that they do not really have a consistent view of the situation at all. But what, what is being expressed is this set of emotionally charged images that I seem to contradict. So it's sort of a, a it's an associative response in connection to, to the, the propaganda images that are at the forefront of the person's mind. Yeah. Um... I mean, I, I, <clears throat> I just to sort of step back to Varun's comment first that um, it's almost as if it, it, because I mean, on one level, if you look at all the Polaroids and my blog post is on vernacular, not entirely, but it, it kicks off with vernacular photography in general. And if you want to, fall into a rabbit hole from which you may never escape. Go to the Peter J. Cohn collection of vernacular photos. This guy collected massive numbers of, you know, incidental snapshots, Polaroids, um, et cetera, some very early, some late, cyanotape types and things like that, as well as Polaroids and, and you know, vacation pics from families. It's it's just remarkable to spend a few hours pouring through that. Uh, but what, what, what I see today is like, it's a different kind of narcissism because you look at those pictures, everybody, they're all narcissistic in a way, they're self-involved. Everybody was looking at themselves, taking pictures of their friends, every friend's taking pictures of you and on. But now, um, it's distilled in this notion of the selfie, right? Um, this it really is the selfie culture on some level, and um, it's a it's a it's a more pathologized narcissism, um, mm. I think, in some way. Um, but anyway, uh, uh, 
I wanted to add that uh, the the two-day Stockholm conference, this is just before I forget, apropos of nothing we just said, um, um, the film, the Oracle Films shot all of it, filmed it beautifully. All of the lectures are now available. There'll be a link in this podcast. Uh, the panel discussions are available. And uh, it, it's, it's a really great uh, document to have, I think, because there's not a bad speech in the whole two days. I mean, they're, they're all uh, hugely relevant and, and from very respected people. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, I had, I, so I'm going to change topics again here very quickly. Uh, I had wanted, I was trying to find a quote, but I couldn't from James Kunstler's blog. And not that I'm even particularly a fan of Kunstler, but, um, and, and he was in one of his kind of smart ass um, attitudes and he was talking about, well, so who is in charge? It can't be people like Klaus Schwab, these cartoons, Ursula van der Leyen, these people with Nazi pedigrees, right? Who come from families of, of Nazis. And uh, it's, it's too much of a cartoon. It's just ridiculous. It's, um, and you know, or what about elected, not, I mean, rather non-elected billionaires, Gates, George Soros, whoever you want, Elon Musk. Why are these people um, constantly in the media talking about things? They are not experts, um, you know, uh, on anything other than making money so far as I can see. And yet that we have entered this age in which wealth uh, uh, provides its own justification or something. You are, you are anointed, you are uh, a, a voice that should be listened to simply because you have vast amounts of money. Um, anyway, uh, okay. Um, anybody, Corey, so nobody's hand is up, so I'm not going to vamp anymore. Corey. Well, I think it was the day, the day after that horrific, horrific earthquake in Turkey and Syria. I think there's over 40,000 dead so far. Um, the day after CBC in Canada was talking all day on the global news hour, every hour, about Bert Bakrat dying at age 94. And it was just, you know, like natural cause, imagine being able to live to 94 years old, dying of natural causes. That was the headline news for the world news all day long. You yeah. know, it took days before they even really started talking about Turkey or Syria in any meaningful way. But it's so terrifying, aside from horrific and pretty much body numbing that, you know, you can't really imagine how horrific that is, especially for the people of Syria who have endured so much, you know, over the past decade. And um, it's just so sad. And, you know, now they're exploiting this quote unquote opportunity to get the white health, to get more funding into, you know, the terror groups in Syria. They're funding now white helmets and, re and presenting them again to the public as this heroic, you know, team saving right. people in Syria, right. these terrorists. So that's all really, really disturbing. And then we have also at the same time that horrific train derailment 
in Ohio, I think, in the oh, state. Yeah, there's a lot to say about that. Go on, yeah. Yeah, so I just wanted to sort of touch on that, how I was looking at that. So in um, Black Megantic in Canada, I'm not yeah, sure what yeah. year that, I think it was 2013, anyway. Right. In 2017, the International Association of Sheet Metal, Air, Rail, and Transportation Workers came out and said that the ECP breaks would have prevented the terrible Black Megantic oil train tragedy that vaporized 47 people and um, destroyed the whole town, right? And they and they cited that. And then today I read that EC, it's a headline, ECP breaks, could technology have mitigated Ohio derailment? So here we have the same thing happening. And I, I just want to touch base with, I mean, I've mentioned this on our podcast a few times about that campaign, you know, the Keystone XL pipeline, which just sort of vanished after a while, after the okay. rail dynasty had been built. But Buffett actually holds um, a lot of shares in what's it called North Boat Southern, right? And some of those shares aren't even disclosed for whatever reason, they don't have to be disclosed. And um, since 2012, when um, Buffett actually bought the NSF under Berkshire Hathaway, I believe he spent around 41 million. It was 26 billion and um, whatever in cash, it came to around 40, $40 billion. And today, well, actually today, it's, I'm not sure today, but in 2021, that was valued over 91 billion dollars. So he more than doubled his, um, you know, profit in, in, in a decade. And I'm just saying all this because it's just another example of how, you know, under this capitalist economic system, this just continues and we're not even allowed to discuss any other system or else you're mocked and ridiculed and pounced upon. Um, so we just continue, you know, um, to go like this. I mean, this is just going to continue. Well, <clears throat> I mean, it already has continued. There was a derailment um, of a train outside Detroit um, carrying something. It, it did nothing exploded and a catastrophe was averted just by serendipity. Uh, but it was it was another accident because of, of faulty maintenance due to, you know. But is uh, this the same one that we're talking about? Cutting costs and no, I mean this was a separate incident. Okay, okay, okay. In yeah, this one's in Detroit, what um, not, vinyl not, chloride. Not the, yeah. The point being that trains are going off the rails because of um, cost-cutting procedures and lack of adherence to safety protocols and whatnot. Um, it is interesting, apropos of the earthquake in Syria, and this speaks to this this intellectual paralysis again. The Washington Post actually published an op-ed by somebody who I didn't know saying, no, do not lift sanctions on Syria to help the victims. Uh, so. um, that, was, that was the argument because, you know, it's more important, forget the dying children under the rubble, forget all that screaming women and children and elderly. No, it's more important that we achieve our political objectives, which is, you know, getting rid of Assad regime change because we need the West and the best and um, are, are the only ones that should, should make these decisions. I wanted to say one other thing and then go to Bruce. 
and I'm jumping all over the place tonight, but I, I you know, that the, the climate discussion keeps coming up. And I saw Greta Thunberg the other day saying something. I, I tune it out when I see her. I don't listen. I just see her lips move. But I remember um, her first tantrum publicly, you know, when she was scolding everybody. She's always forever scolding people. Uh, and she said, you've stolen my dreams. And I thought about that today for some reason. I was thinking about that. And I thought that's, that's almost um, sociopathic, that statement. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, it's a kind of entitlement that, I mean, that's an amazing thing to say publicly. You, you know, all the big industry or whatever, whoever she blames, has stolen my dreams. Um, it, if I don't know, ponder that. Um, mm. grasshopper Johan yeah but it's, it's kind of a marketing slogan too perhaps but you know to even say that that let's let's not lift sanctions off of, of Syria and the situation I, I think that's such a remarkable statement that it, it kind of bespeaks this this idea that our society is morally impeccable and beyond <clears throat> judgment and I'm, I'm I'm just mulling over in my head how to to explain the the emergence of, of such an approach such a worldview on on the social order excuse me uh, and my my theory here <laughs> so, so my idea here is that secular consumer society engenders what i would call an, an ethics of, of desire you know this this meta ethical perspective on existence where pleasurable experience is kind of the highest good and the key source of meaning. So, so you know, the sense in which uh, utilitarianism became a supporting ideology of capitalism is also a kind of a confirmation of this. So, so the, the idea is that the spectacle gives us this narrow and distorted sort of hedonism uh, defined by the spectacle, by, by mass medias and by the advertising industries, uh, the framing of, of worldly goods and valuable experience. And, and this a symbiotic relationship finally renders consumer society as the only conceivable source of hedonic pleasure. And I think this connects very nicely to transhumanist ideals and anti-redemptive scientism and ideologies of progress. So, so you know, where pleasure is inconceivable outside of the spe spectacle, the transformative objectives of capital become this, this substitute for actual nature and all of this, this entire construct becomes this, this irreproachable moral order. And I, I think that's where we are. And I think that's sort of the process, how we got here. Um, yeah, I, I think that's, I think that's good. I was thinking a lot this week about the concept of entertainment because uh, I, I was pondering my experience here uh, with, with, younger people, high school students, college students, the sense of entitlement that, I mean, that it's a really very deeply entitled generation. And I think the, the elevation of this idea of entertainment, which is actually relatively recent, um, is tied into that. But, you know, I don't want to launch too far afield. Varun? Yeah, I, I, 
to you. Yeah, I just want to add to what you and Johan were just speaking about. Uh, in terms of the repetition inside the simulation is only of this fabricated pleasure where there is no room for the individual to actually be spontaneous. So your spectrum, your emotional and mental and cognitive spectrum is narrowed down only to what is available externally. So your dependence on feeling good is always externalized. It's always dependent on what TikTok will give you or Instagram will give you or what kind of neurotic kind of news cycles are running right now. So your emotional charge is completely absorbed by the spectacle and that's, I think, also kind of ties into what you were talking about, like the visual culture of photography, of the image itself, is it's only being absorbed and then regurgitated. That that example of the Netflix film came out about this, um, the train wreck and the polyvinyl um, spill which was a book that got written. That's very interesting because these are repeating images that are right. within the spectacle. And there is a lot of discussion around whether it's being pre-programmed or whether, you know, it's, it's kind of a, um, like some kind of conspiracy by the government. But I think it's, also, it's a combination of both things in the sense that that's how the spectacle functions. It's, mm. it's going to induce imagery imagery that I, that is then going to repeat itself, right? And so- <clears throat> No, that's true, yeah. The repetition does not exist anymore, right? Like so there's, no, there's no willing participation. It's just this unconscious kind of going on and on and on and on. Well, it, yeah, you know, it's, it's, um, it is certainly this blurring of, uh, I mean, making documentaries today, for example, is very, very difficult because I don't think one knows what the rules are. And I remember that at, at the film school when I was teaching, it was already becoming problematic um, to, to, uh, to keep a firm grasp sort of ethically on what you were doing, what you were documenting, what were the rules. You had to have rules if you were to avoid exploiting your subject somehow or distorting, you know, what they were saying. But, but you know, we're so far down this road um, with social media, and, and I mean, you know, we were attacked again this week um, uh, um, you know, uh, I was uh, uh, using a fake quote of Marx. It was an edited quote <laughs> of Marx. And, um, you know, unless you quote the entirety of the book, every quote is edited, you know, and that's what, you know, ellipses are for dot 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 anyway um so but but it's a very toxic atmosphere and it was designed by the you know those platforms whether it's facebook or twitter or tiktok or all of them uh all of them in various ways instagram are are toxic and meant to trigger a certain kind of addictive response, usually negative because that's more charged. And <clears throat> the people who design these platforms admit this, 
Some of them feel guilty about it, you know, as they spend their billions of dollars. But uh, it, it's, uh, it, we've certainly entered a societal phase of, of uh, I mean, it's a deeply, the Western society is deeply passive aggressive. I see it daily. People are, are um, shut down, but expressing hostility yeah. in these kind of buried secondary ways. I feel like I'm surrounded, if I go shopping, I'm surrounded by angry people who are pretending not to be angry. That's my experience. I don't feel like it's a happy group, you know, at a party taking Polaroids, you know, it's not that anymore. It's, and they're paying more for the food they're buying and they're repressing their anger about that and so forth and so on. Um, Corey. Yeah, I just wanted to add on to what Bruno was saying about the spectacle and imagery and that type of thing. And um, it came to mind, I think I told you guys about a week ago or so when that started happening, all that story about the balloons. That morning when I turned on my laptop um, up came a screensaver. It changes every day. I, if I can um, shut it off, I don't know how. So anyway, that comes up when I log in. And it was a landscape with a balloon in the background just floating. There. <laughs> and like, I don't think that's a coincidence, right? I think that's very deliberate. And then if we um, recall, um, you know, with Ukraine, all of a sudden, when you start looking around, all the ads were yellow and blue right and then yeah, all the fashion all the fashions yellow and blue like this is very very real and then um of course i forget the word they were just using recently um surrounding syria um vanessa Bealy told me anyway i can't recall it but you know for instance build back better right all the media and all the news will pick up on a certain word and um so when we know that happens with words of course, that's going to be happening with images as well, right? We don't, for some reason, we don't really talk about that very much or see it in the same way. Um, and I don't really know why, but yeah. <clears throat> yeah, and, and you know, I, th I think that it's worth noting, um, you know, we suffered through, society suffered through this state of exception, you know, what Gambin talks about, this, this almost survival mode, people were expected to, you know, mask up and not travel, take their vaccines, all of these things without discussion, without debate. And uh, if you listen to the lectures at the, at the pandemic uh, conference in Stockholm, uh, just just note Pierre Corey's lecture because he tracks very clearly and, and undeniable misinformation that the government put out about ivermectin in this particular case, that uh, it cost him a couple of different jobs. Um, he, his uh, findings were suppressed and on and on and on. And, you know, I remember leftists on social media making fun of ivermectin, uh, saying, oh, well, you don't have to get vaccines, but don't take that horse dewormer. And I remember at the time thinking that's very curious. But anyway, the, the, the point being that after that two-year period, suddenly we have the US-NATO-Ukraine conflict. 
and it has it has become um, the 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 leading propaganda uh, 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 subject, and you can't the I mean it is actually much worse in many ways. The Russophobia is is just I mean the I, was it the Metropolitan a big museum retitle one of Degas paintings maybe it was a drawing. Um, which was from 150 years ago, titled Russian Dancer. And they retitled it, Dancer yeah. in Ukrainian Dress. Degas apparently has nothing to say about this, you know, because he's been dead for 100 years or so. Um, it's that, you know, it's freedom fries, right? It's, it's, it's this level of dumb. And, and I remember Johan, you noting they had taken Russian yogurt off the shelves or something yeah. in Sweden. Um, so, so that it, 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 it's it's people that should know better are are slowly ground down. You can say, look, just watch the Oliver Stone documentary from 2016. You know, it's not radical, crazy. I mean, he lets the people speak for themselves. Just go watch that if you don't believe me. Um, uh, you know, listen to Victoria Newland's speeches, even right up to today. And tell me she's not deranged, um, you know that Joe Biden. I mean, my God, um, the 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 political spectacle now that is pushing this. We have Ursula van der Leyen speaking of always, you know, choosing blue and yellow attire and scarves or thousand dollar scarves. Um, whose family are Nazis, go back, they were slave traders before they were Nazis, um, Klaus Schwab, all of these people, uh, the Zelensky government shuts down opposition, jails opposition party leaders, uh, you know, apologizes away the, the national holiday that is, you know, named in honor of Stefan Bandera, who, led pogroms to lynch Polish children, and yet the Poles are the most hysterical anti-Russian um, enthusiasts for this war that you can find. You know, I have Jewish friends, American Jewish friends, who are staunchly behind, you know, US, NATO, Ukraine. Uh, the Western press writes stories that are fictional. The New York Times now is like a, a you know, a small press quarterly writing fiction. I mean, it bears no resemblance to reality. The, you know, Ukrainians are on the verge of victory and now they're getting this shipment of tanks coming from Germany and America. A, there's nobody left to drive the tanks who knows how to drive them. It'll take six months at best, at earliest, to teach whoever is left there how to operate these very complicated tanks and weapon systems. Um, and three, I'm, I seriously doubt those tanks actually will ever get to uh, the conflict zone uh, because, because this conflict will be settled long before that because Russia is just deciding how they want to conclude it and how to deal with the United States um, hysterical reaction to this public humiliation in a sense and on and on and on. So it's, it, it's <clears throat> excuse me, it's, it's almost more delusional than than the COVID story at a certain point. Yeah. And on top of that, now we get 
you know, all the climate stuff. I clocked in one day headlines about uh, rising sea levels that might, um, you know, submerge coastal cities in Africa, might, based on what? Well, they don't tell you, just, you know. Um, and then something about an asteroid that was going to become dangerously close to Earth, the dangerous Chinese weather balloon and other unidentified flying objects. And then you have a real catastrophic chemical spill in this horrific train derailment, the biggest danger of which at, when it first happened was that it would explode. So the experts went in and then exploded it. Um, that was their solution to their fear of it exploding, is just do it themselves. The whole thing is like, I mean, you're just living in cloud cuckoo land. And, um, I, you know, this is why, it's why everyone's depressed, um, even if they don't know it, even if they don't know that's the reason. Um, deep down, your unconscious, you know, is processing stuff and it doesn't add up and it isn't providing the reassurance that normally such, you know, cognitive faculties provide. Corey. Okay, well, I, I just stumbled upon uh, sort of treasure trove uh, examples of the psychological warfare being waged against us. Um, this is pretty crazy, really. So I, I just quickly looked up um, Doomsday. And just in the past uh, couple weeks, here's some examples. Antarctica Doomsday Glacier. That's making headlines all over. The UN's talking about the Doomsday Clock in reference to climate change. Um, in reference to food, we've got every day's doomsday, how a food bank is struggling to keep up. China spy balloon, leaked Pentagon memo paints doomsday. Um, coronavirus, the doomsday coronavirus variant has sparked panic. Um, China malls doomsday trains to carry and launch nuclear. So, and then you've got uh, doomsday in China about financial capital collapses. So there you've got about 10 different things all being called doomsday, right? Yeah. And, and that is a really great example of psychological terror, right? Being waged on the, on the populace. Yeah, and right? it is, and it is. I mean, avian flu, that's another one, right? <clears throat> yeah. I saw an article about, yeah, birds showing up dead on uh, the, you know, some beach somewhere in Scotland, I think it was, and experts are worried this will, you know, means an onset of uh, transference to human beings and so forth. Meanwhile, by the way, in that <clears throat> chemical derailment, chemical explosion from the train derailment, um, every animal in that area is dead. You know, the rivers have clogged with floating dead fish. Somebody let their dog out, um, <laughs> you know, to, to take a walk and, and uh, he didn't ever come back. He, they went and found him, he was dead. Um, people's parakeets have died and on and on and on. Um, but we needn't worry about that, the water's safe to drink, don't worry. Um, worry about the dead birds that showed up on the beach in Scotland because that might actually mean that, you know, you're gonna need extra booster shots or something, who the fuck knows? I mean, okay, um, the Varun, Johan, Corey, take whatever, Order. Yeah, it kind of, I mean, this kind of um, propaganda has kind of re 
reinforcing the idea of a learned helplessness within the population. It's continuously yeah. saying that this is the problem and we are going to provide you with a solution and so on and so forth. It's very interesting because I saw a press briefing by the US government about some sort of Russian psyop about, um, that was about to unfold. And a journalist in the crowd kept asking this man for evidence that this was being planned. And the only retort the guy came up with was, I just told you so. And yeah. so, so the, the idea that TikTok or Instagram can introduce a new trend and then it just goes viral for a week is basically exactly the same what the US administration is doing there, is that this is what we say. And then anybody who's watching that is parroting it for one week and then it stops right and so you keep lifting the paranoia up continuously you just keep it afloat there's like this free floating anxiety in this in the population and so right. there is you're just continuously reinforcing not trusting your experience you're disconnecting the self from the person continuously that's what's happening yeah um absolutely uh johan yeah, so 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 to connect with what, what both you and, and Corey just said, so so if we add to, to my, my kind of line of reasoning, the, the notion of crisis, this doomsday idea, I, I would argue that if if we assume a, a secularist ethic, a secularist consumerist ethic, where, where there's no stable moral order outside of desire, outside of the the tangible goods of immediate experience. So that, that in that situation, if you introduce crises, uh, several crises, reoccurring crises, if you, if you characterize life with crises, th that fact will also constitute a, and consolidate the social order as this unassailable moral and existential foundation, which in turn will intertwine the political and, and moral order inseparably so, so that any, any sort of emergency will always and immediately take on this tangible moral quality. And this, this gets extremely polarizing because whatever can plausibly be portrayed as, as a threat to this, this morally unassailable social order becomes evil. In that situation, the other is extremely dangerous. The enemy image of the other becomes very prominent and, and anything perceived as a defense of the political other is sort of impossible by default because that's an expression of, of immediate evil in a sense. Kind of. Yeah, go ahead, Bruno. I also, I mean, what you're saying, Johan, is so spot on in the sense that it also perpetuates this idea of a short lifespan where then the only recourse is becoming a passive consumer you're only consuming there is no creative aspect to this kind of living at all so that your your mind is entrained to say you live only once the world is your oyster so on and so forth and so consume all you can don't give a shit about the world anymore. that's it right yeah. right well i mean you know, it's it's these topics are extraordinarily complex. I was just as you were talking, glancing at 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 the um, where is it at, at the uh, Marcusa essay, and uh, I'll provide and maybe we can even do 
a more detailed discussion of it next because he's he's talking about um sort of the manufacturing of of ideas of man and history and then by default a future um currents that have been existing since world one right and 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 that that and but one of the things is um one of the sort of themes is is the idea of life as this primal given um, uh, you know, he says, life as such is a primal given beyond which the mind cannot penetrate, which is withdrawn from any rational foundation, justification, or evaluation. Life, when understood in this way, becomes an inexhaustible reservoir for all yeah. irrational powers. Um, this is very important. And, and um, I'm trying to remember who it was I was reading the other day, and it may have been a Gambon, um, probably was, talking about uh, th the changes in how Western society views the idea of life, of a life. Uh, and it's, it's very, it's, you know, this is a topic that is that is worthy of, you know, probably a lot longer time than we can devote to it on a podcast. But, but these are the things that I, I, I keep feeling. One of my frustrations is, you know, is I feel that social media kills a pedagogy, right? You can't teach, you can't have discourse dialogue on social media, it can't be done. It just, it's just toxic and it kills it. And nobody in society anymore values the role of being a student. Um, I love being a student, you know, those times when you can find a teacher, whatever the topic, when I had this retired grandmaster teaching me chess and pole and this wonderful old man, Roman. And, and I felt, so lucky to be able to just go listen to him. He didn't speak much English, but we came up with a kind of pigeon Polish English, and and uh, and it, you know, it was a it was a privilege, but that that that's gone. People feel entitled. This entitlement. My opinions are my opinions. I shopped for them, in you know the marketplace of ideas here on TikTok, yeah. and and. And, and, and so I'm entitled to those ideas, whether there's any value in them or not, whether they're pathological or destructive or nihilistic doesn't matter. Um, they're mine, I own them, ideas as private property, I guess. And, and so uh, it's, it's very frustrating because this kind of discussion, what I just referenced with Marcuse and what Johan brought up, this is the kind of thing that we should be having long dialogues about mm. and teaching. Um, because what passes for public, like the public intellectual today is like Jordan Peterson. And I was watching a couple of Jordan Peterson YouTube videos. Like I can only take about three minutes of this guy. He's a moron. I mean, he's a moron. Not just 
like shallow. I mean, he's a moron. How did this guy develop this career and this posture of, you know, um, um, erudition? He's a moron. I mean, it's really kind of shocking. Uh, and and this is what passes for the public intellectual today. And it's so it's it stands to reason, you know, that we're all suffering this kind of um, cognitive intellectual suffocation uh, because because it's very hard. I feel it every day, to be honest. Um, Corey and, and then Hiroyuki. I'll go ahead. Hiroyuki. Did you have your hand up, Corey? Maybe you didn't. There's so many yellow hands. Hiroyuki, let's hear from you. Well, you, you know, I, I was just thinking that uh, it kind of makes sense that, uh, you know, the, you, you talked about selfie. You know, people are desperate to be seen, to be recognized, uh, yeah. their particular position, and uh, and I mean this is this is probably the result of the uh, 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 people being domesticated to follow packaged uh, narratives. You know, they 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 that's all they have. So um, um, selfie, you know, that's that's <laughs> me, you know, and it's yeah. the same thing um, when we talk about the uh, adamant behavior of uh, sticking to uh the the establishment narrative you know it's uh um yeah. it makes sense but it's a uh, it's a uh, it, it is a sad situation it's it's very very frustrating i'm uh, um it really destroys communities it destroys uh personhood and uh um yeah it does it does and you know i worry about my kids all the right. time right right because i just I, I don't know in 10 years and they, you know, they get out of high school and what, I mean, what will be there for them? What are their choices? Um, I don't know, but I, but I worry, you know, Varun? Well, it's, it's like, um, what, what do you have to sell? How can you monetize yourself? kind of ideology it's not it has nothing to do with learning or experience and things like that it's just a it's this like you have nothing but you can get on tiktok or you can get on instagram reels and have millions of followers and kind of advertising campaigns attached to you and so on and so forth so it kind of fits into the market perspective where everybody is for sale but there is nothing yeah. there is no um philosophy or ideology which is being perpetuated it's only financial gain that is being perpetuated there is nothing else attached at all whatsoever so there is a abs there is an absolute decimation of philosophical thinking of interrogation of critical analysis and so on and so forth so of course yeah. I mean, if you, if you manage to suppress suppress this kind of like you've written about this idea of being in the unknown and curiosity before on your blog but if you suppress that aspect of the human then you've already put them in a prison, right? Like they're already in a prison. They're not open anymore. Their walls are defined by how much money they can make by selling what part of themselves. That's all their value, value is. So the value-driven market in that sense is monetizing the individual identity, in which sense then people have to make these fake identities to sell, right? Which is celebrity yeah, culture. No, no. Emulating celebrity culture. Well, yeah, I mean, this is, this is, um, you hear about it in sports a lot, young 
kids uh, do one year of college playing basketball, for example, and are drafted, they're 18 years old, and they're suddenly millionaires. And I've heard older coaches, Greg Popovich for one, but um, the older NBA coaches saying, you know, I it's getting depressing because I find kids who don't want to learn how to play the game, they want to develop their brand. And, and that's what we're talking about, right? That people develop their brand. Yeah, that's and, it. And, and um, it's, it's uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just want to segue um, <laughs> very quickly uh, to uh, uh, a comment because it's very, very representative. I don't know this person. It was a comment on my blog. And I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not dissing this guy or anything. I, you know, he's entitled to say what he wants. He sounds perfectly um, cordial in a certain kind of way. But what he wrote about the last blog post, he goes, love the content, but the unrelated art feels ADHD. I love pertinent art that portrays the point made. The random abstract art is gaudy or something smug. Mm. That's the end of the quote. Um, serve me, serve me, slip. <laughs> slip is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm so smug. Everybody knows that. Um, but, 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 I found that very interesting. I found, I really did ponder this, this comment, quite a bit because. It's interesting linking ADHD with smugness, first of all. Uh, I wouldn't normally do that, right? I, there, it's interesting. Um, and pertinent art <laughs> that explains, <laughs> illustrates, what he's asking for is art that illustrates the point, the concept can be illustrated. So he's not asking for art, he's asking for illustrations. Um, and, and I've tried to explain that to to people in the past, people say, what's the difference between illustration and art, right? Um, and and it's, in the, it's in the very noun for, I mean, illustrators illustrate that, you know, art does something entirely different. So, um, but I think that this is, this takes us back to entertainment yeah. um, and, and the, the way in which the culture industry, Hollywood panders to, um, to the audience now, the lowest common denominator, the word accessibility is a very dangerous word, I think. It's not accessible enough. I remember the first time I heard that, you know, um, I've had, you know, Hollywood executives say to me, what, where's the rooting interest? Who do we root for on this? You know, your mother. Um, it, you know, it, it's, it's, it's the same thing. They're, ask, they're all asking for the same thing. Um, uh, accessible, rooting interest, don't be all ADHD and smug, um, <laughs> illustrate the point and stay in your lane. You know, um, that's, that's the message. And uh, it is driven home constantly. And so no wonder Mm. Um, uh, no wonder stuff, you know, 
stuff like, I don't know, the art on my blog is, is experienced as disruptive, as threatening, as irritating, as insulting, as accusatory, who knows? Um, it's all those things, uh, as, as is all good art, you know? Mm. I mean, try to explain to somebody why Rothko is a great painter today. You know, um, it's very hard. It's very hard uh, because because we don't have that. The culture doesn't any longer have that sense of of mystery and awakening mm. and, and and the transcendental anymore. If that mm. that's part of that's part of what has gone away. I think. Okay, Johan and then Varun. Sure. Yeah, and and <clears throat> I mean, sometimes the the artworks on on your on your blog create this this tension between what's written and what's being presented as, as an artwork the, the image and that is fruitful precisely because of the tension it creates because that opens new interpretive possibilities and then new avenues of thoughts and, and generates inspiration because it challenges the, the readers and I, I just throw it Throw, throwing that out the, the, the window, I think that's just unreasonable. I, I just wanted to leave you off with, with a quote from, from Marcuse. Uh, I, it's one of these essays. I, I think it's <clears throat> the struggle against uh, liberalism and, and the totalitarian view of the state essay. Uh, and I think it kind of ties things together a little bit. Let me just go ahead. Uh, yeah, and, and within the political sphere, all relationships are oriented in turn towards the most extreme crisis, towards the decision about the state of emergency, of war and peace. The true possessor of, of political power is defined as beyond all legality and legitimacy. Sovereign is he who decides on the state of emergency. Sovereignty is founded on the factual power to make this decision. The basic political relationships, the, the friend and friend enemy relationship, its crisis is war, which proceeds until the enemy has been physically annihilated. And he concludes, there is no social relationship that, that does not in a crisis turn into a political relationship. Behind all economic, Social, religious, and cultural relations stand total politicization. There is no sphere of private or public life, no legal or rational court of appeal that could oppose it. And that's kind of an apt description of the, the, the development of the social yeah. state. Yeah. Um, yes. See, I mean, I wish there were a lot more time in a sense to, because these are things, it seems to me, these are, these are, the the beginning of how one would teach people to think again because i think if if you taught it sounds so i don't mean to sound arrogant in the way that perhaps i sound because that really isn't my intention sincerely but um if if we could engage in a in a pedagogical process to to reclaim critical thinking in some way these would be the the baby steps these would be the the stones the first bricks that you laid to start talking about thinking and i think if that happened see my firm belief is if that mm -hmm. happened that people would be much less depressed sure. um because you know it's like escape 
this this horrific um, um, alienation that people experience, and and I mean we all do. I do. Um, it's very hard not to. It's it's you're living in with you know the wrong kinds of tension, and and um, and I think we all feel a little threatened. I was looking for um, for a, a quote from um, uh, a Gambin, and uh, but I may not have time to to um, uh, to find it here. Um, all right. Well, uh, uh, maybe we should get um, some final comments here, um, unless there's there's other topics. I feel like we vented a lot tonight. Yeah. Um, Corey? Well, I have a topic. It's about um, the scanners. I mean, we knew at the beginning of the pandemic that, quote unquote pandemic, that part of it would be this whole digit digitization, right, of, of society, especially Western right, society right. in particular. And they um, were very upfront that part of that would be putting in the automation and all the self checkouts and all that. So that we've had a huge wave of that in Canada, um, especially in the past even year. Um, more and more, there's no tellers, just self checkout. But I think it's optimistic. I've read even in um, Trump, maybe National Post, like a big mainstream paper, uh, actually quite a good article on people, more and more people stealing um, from their food, right? Through the scanning system. And actually they're being robbed blind, these huge corporations whose profits have soared um, wow, during the past three years. Yeah, and so they interviewed some people. Um, they had, you know, um, fake names in the article, whatever. They, pr they protected their identity. But they were speaking, right? And these people are um, completely aware that they've been, you know, fucked over, that they continue to be fucked over, that this system serves the rich, right? And the ruling classes, they will not steal from small independent business, right? Only from these corporations. And they've, you know, and they insist they work hard, they've done everything right, and they cannot afford their food. And more and more people are using these and stealing them blind. And I'm happy to hear it. And it, um, it, re it, rec it made me and you know, there's other articles like the art, right, of, of how to do this well, the art of, you know, using these um, systems that are replacing people and getting away with it. And um, it made me recall a paper. Um, what is it? It's from, I think, 19, early 19, maybe 1994. It's called When Looting Becomes a Right. Or, and it's about um, the food riots in Argentina. This is um, based, it's a Latin American paper. It's very, very good. And then there's another paper that I found um, by the OECD and it's published in 2011. It's talking about shifting wealth and the consequences of rising food prices on social cohesion. And it says um, right in this fairly short paper, 33 pages. Um, throughout history, food shortages have been a persistent cause of social unrest. It goes on to say that guaranteeing food security thus needs to be a priority to any government which aspires to creating, and I think this is key, a socially cohesive society. But now what we have is our governments trying to destroy 
that's, you know, any remnants of social cohesion, like they're liberally pouring, you know, trying to destroy that. So I, I think this whole, um, I mean, the food prices here are just astronomical now. Yeah. yeah right. So, well. so what, what is really happening? We know that laborers, um, farmers, you know, aren't getting paid more than they were before. Um, you know, well, we just have <clears throat> monopoly yeah, here. Yeah, no, farmers, yeah, yeah. None of, none of the profit certainly is going to the farmers. Um, uh, that's, that's really fascinating, actually. See, yeah, this is the, um, this is the, uh, uh, like the unconscious of technology or something coming up and, and, um, uh, the un unexpected, um, What's the, what's the term they always use? Unintended consequences or something. I mean, that they're being stolen from. Of course they are. When you sit back and think about it, of course they are. Um, I would too, you know. I mean, people have families to feed and food is, you know, that's bedrock survival stuff. Let me read you, um, here's my closing stuff. And we don't have to, I mean, we can talk for as long as we, we can talk for eight hours, I don't care. But I'm gonna read you something from May 2nd, 2020 by Agamben. Uh, it's just a couple of paragraphs. Quote, it has been evident for quite a while that science has become our time's religion the thing which people believe that they believe in. Three systems of belief have coexisted and in some ways still coexist today in the modern West, Christianity, capitalism, and science. In the history of modernity, these three, in quotation marks, religions, often and unavoidably intersected each time clashing with one another and then reconciling until they gradually reached a sort of peaceful articulated cohabitation, if not a true collaboration in the name of a common interest. What is new is that without us noticing a subterranean and implacable conflict between science and the other two religions has ignited. Science's triumphs appear today before our very eyes and they determine in an unprecedented way every aspect of our existence. This conflict does not pertain as it did in the past to general theories and principles, but so to speak, to cultic praxis. No less than any other religion, science organizes and arranges its own structure through different forms and ranks to its elaboration of a subtle and rigorous dogmatics corresponds in praxis a vast and intricate cultic sphere that coincides with what we call technology." Close quote. I think I used that somewhere in something I wrote, in fact, maybe in a blog post, I'm not sure. Um, I, I think that insightful two paragraphs. Demic um, conference with scientists and, and researchers and doctors, technical people that spent, you know, most of their lives 
looking into microscopes and stuff, um, who were really rigorous though, and and uh, who were not used to speaking in public or or presenting themselves as as um, representatives of, of uh, protest or or dissent in any way, and um, they were very admirable. I felt all of them, and and I had enormous respect. I, I gained enormous respect for all of them, um, and I thought then, and I think now. But look at look at the people that appear on evening news, and there was a recent broadcast that the the um, Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Pentagon presented, what's his name, Lloyd Austin and some four-star general, and they were giving a joint press conference. And I mean, these, you know, these guys were so visibly stupid and inarticulate and fumbled questions and couldn't answer anything properly. Um, and it was a one sidebar. It was interesting that the four-star general had like 11 rows of ribbons and, you know, fruit salad and whatever he had on his chest, right? Medals and stars and all this stuff weighing him down. And I went back and I looked at um, the last picture of Dwight Eisenhower um, in his dress uniform when, before he became president. He had one row, one row medals. Just interesting. Anyway, close sidebar. Um, but then you look at Joe Biden, um, you know, um, obviously in dementia, can barely function, uh, can barely talk, makes sense. Kamala Harris, you know, seems to be hiding from the public. Um, she can't speak extemporaneously at all. They don't let her. Uh, What's his name? Mitch McConnell. I saw the. I'm just thinking of politicians. Uh, you know, Zelensky, Ursula van der Leyen, all these people. None of them inspire respect or admiration. I mean, they're they're cartoon figures. This was James Kunstler's point. It can't be. These can't be the people making decisions. They can't be. There's other people we don't know about because this is a clown show. And and uh, and it it begs the question of who those those other figures might be. Okay, now final thoughts from everybody quickly. Hiroyuki, uh, when you uh, about the quote, when he talks about uh, technology, is he talking about the uh, general um, trajectory of the um, capitalist hegemony, or is he just simply talking about uh, industrialized technology that's sort of, you know, having its own, you know, form. Cause I, I you know, I, I think it's- Okay, you know what, you know what? I'm gonna answer, I'm gonna answer you by reading another paragraph that follows off that, okay? We'll see if we find an answer. Cause I, I'm not sure quite how to answer. So quote, <clears throat> It is not surprising that the protagonist of this new religious war is the very branch of science whose dogmatics is less rigorous and whose pragmatic aspect is stronger. That is medicine, whose object is the living human body. Let us try to define 
the essential features of this victorious faith, one which we will increasingly have to deal with. One, the first feature is the fact that medicine, like capitalism, has no need for a special dogmatics because it is limited to borrowing its fundamental ideas from biology. Unlike biology, however, medicine articulates these ideas in a Gnostic Manichaean sense, that is to say through an exacerbated dualistic opposition. There is a malign God or principle, namely the disease, whose specific agents are, say, bacteria and viruses, and a beneficent God or principle, which is not health, but recovery, whose cultic agents are doctors and therapy. As in every Gnostic faith, these two principles are clearly separated, but can in practice contaminate one another. The beneficent principle and the doctor who represents it can err and unknowingly collaborate with their enemy without thereby invalidating either the, real, <clears throat> the reality of the dualism or the cultic necessity through which the beneficent principle fights his battle. It is indeed significant that the theologians who have to entrench this strategy represent a science, virology, that does not possess its own place but stands at the border between biology and medicine, close quote. Mm. So in, in a sense, he's talking about uh, social institutions uh, under the uh, capitalist domination. Yeah, I mean, he's, yeah, he's talking about, I suppose you could say he's talking about capitalist technology. Technology as it developed in the health industry um, through in the shadow of the profit motive, I think right. is what he's doing. Mm. Right. Okay, um, last, last words from everybody. Hey, do you want me to go first? I, I just wanted to I just wanted to end yeah, on I want really... someone to go first. Yeah. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. So Thank I you. wanted to end for a change on a positive note, um, based on going forward on what you were just talking about. So <laughs> my my daughter's dog has been limping since last June. And we took it, um, you know, like huge bills later, they did x-rays, everything, nothing showed up. And then um, about six weeks ago, um, midnight could not even stand at all. Like he couldn't walk anymore. He couldn't stand. And anyway, it was a horrible morning. I was bawling my eyes out. I was thinking I was going to have to put him down. And um, I took him to the vet and they said, well, they did blood work. Oh, we still don't see anything. He probably has a tumor on his spine. Um, so we'll have to give him this like horrible, horrible medication. So they had to check his blood to make sure his kidneys and liver were, were good and they were really good. And so he could take this horrible medication that will destroy his kidney and liver in about six months, but there's no other choice because he, you know, can't even walk anymore. And so it was, you know, it was really um, sad. Like I said, it cost a fortune. We had to buy this medication. And the next day he, he's sort of walking again. I didn't want to give it to him. Um, I got him some CBD oil and some natural stuff. Anyway, someone told me about this naturopathic doctor. And so I thought, well, we have nothing to lose. We took him there and it was not expensive. Anyway, long story short, it, um, he adjusted his leg and now he's running around like a pop. 
Nice. Yeah, yeah, he's on um, some some natural collagen builders from Germany or something. Some natural oh. medication. His leg is healing. He's not on any of these hardcore drugs. I think it was actually a Pfizer That's drug. And yeah, he's so happy and doing so well. That is good. Let me tell you a very quick story. I have to tell this because it relates to the same thing. I ten years ago, I had a black Russian terrier, a very big dog. You can look it up, Stalin's dog. And um, he he coughed all the time. He had been kind of the runt of the litter. I got him at a dog show in, in um, Krakow and, and anyway, but he was a great dog, Boris. I loved him, And um, but he was like a year and a half old or so, and he was coughing all the time. The vet said, you know, he's, you know he, he's got some kind of condition. We don't know, they give him antibiotics. The cough would come back, it would go away, it would come back. My wife's father, who ran a dairy farm, he's retired now recently, um, suggested kind of offhandedly, well, we just had a cow give birth and we have the first milk that comes out is full of blood and all kinds of things, right? And um, it's thick and kind of disgusting and, and pungent and, um, and but, it's, but it's very healthy and the young calf um, develops immunity from drinking it and so forth. So I said, sure, I'll, you know, if he'll drink it, I'll give it to him. So he gave me a big bucket of this because they had a lot of it excess. And I gave it to Boris and he gulped it down. He loved it. <laughs> he could, he licked the pan dry. He never coughed again huh. wow. from, from that day forward. That's a true story. So, you know, okay, Johan. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a Yates quote. I think our friend Juniper Koslowski on Facebook posted it. He goes, the world is full of magical things, patiently waiting for our senses to grow sharper. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Right. I, but nice. that's, yeah, that's a good place to end because I think, I think that's right. Okay. That's good. See, we ended on a, on a positive <laughs> note. Look at us. We're, <laughs> We're such like smiley face, smiley face podcast. Okay, thank you everybody. Hiroyuki, Johan, Corey, and Vroom. I appreciate you guys. Um, Thanks. And um, we'll talk soon. Thanks, John. Thank you, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.